Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and Norman Horn is joining me today to answer your questions on this final episode of 2019. We are going to talk about Tulsi Gabbard, doxing, border security wall, David Lipscomb and civil government. Free will. And we're going to talk about free will. and <laughs> All sorts of crazy things. That's true. So uh, we're just going to jump right in with the questions. And This is a Q&A. We solicited all of these. Yes. And uh, most everybody gave us their first name. And so this is cool. Thank you, Andre, for asking this question. Is there anyone of LCI that I can meet in France? I want to begin a group. Well, I don't personally know anybody in France, and I don't think Norman does either. But what's really amazing is that we have groups all over the globe. Most of them are in the U.S. that we are aware of. And we don't really run the groups per se, but we actually have a page on our website. If you go to libertarianchristians.com slash groups, really easy. We take our cues from Tom Woods on making URLs easy. So libertarianchristians.com slash groups, plural. And you will be able to find a group, and I don't believe there is one in France. But if you want to begin a group, we actually have given you some tools in order to do that, giving you some ideas on how to launch a group, how to reach out. We don't really do a lot of legwork for you. Um, That's going to be on you because we have found in the past that the less legwork we do for people in those groups, the more those groups actually succeed because they're coming from, I would say, they're grassroots in your area. So if you are passionate about that, please go to libertarianchristians.com slash groups and you can start your own group. Thank you for the question. But we'll also say, like, if you want us to help promote, we can let people know via the website or via our social media that yes. there's something going on. And we'll be happy to help you out with that. And then as well, if you you have a, me- a really cool meeting and you want to tell us about it and you want us to tell other people about it, well, then doggone it, we will post it. We would love to encourage people with the exploits of your meetings. Uh, I'm dead serious because this this is great stuff. You know, when, when Christians gather together to speak of these things, uh, it's a good thing. So we encourage you to do that. And we'll try to help you in that respect. That's about as best we can do. Yeah, and in the guide on how to start a group, we give you all the information on how we will help you. So great. So do it. All right. Question number two is from Garrett from Idaho, Massachusetts, England, and serving his country abroad. Should the United States citizens and its electoral college elect Tulsi Gabbard in 2020 and 2024? Garrett, thank specific. you for the- 2020 and 2024. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wants two terms for her right a, now. Is this a both and? <laughs> yeah. Um, or can we can, can we, I just, can we just start with? Can right. We, we see how it goes in 2020. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I, I also appreciate that you say and it's electoral college because many people don't they just to kind of ignore that that's part of the process. But anyway, that's just a side comment. He's a um, clever so man. So thoughts on Tulsi Gabbard. There have been a lot of libertarians who have raised their eyes and looked over at Tulsi Gabbard because some of the things she's been saying in the Democratic Party's primary election. So my thoughts on this are essentially that there she is a one-issue overlap with libertarians. Maybe, maybe more than that, actually. I know that I'm realizing it's she's two issues. 
And her major platform is basically we need to get a hold of ourselves in terms of our foreign policy. The U.S. should not be doing all of the things that it's doing abroad. We need to reassess our military base presence around the world. We definitely don't need to be invading other countries. She sounds a lot like Ron Paul and most libertarians who are very, very anti-war. If that is your single issue, like if you are the kind of libertarian that's like, look, this is the single biggest thing that we as America need to stop doing and that's just got to come before everything else, I think there's a world in which that she might be a good choice for you. In the context of the party she represents, the party that she's running for president on, it also, of course, brings with it a lot of other problems. And if you're a libertarian, those things are things like Medicare choice that she she calls it. It's similar to Medicare for all. It basically gives everyone a you know a choice to to do Medicare and like she has all these things that most libertarians would be like, Ugh, that no, nah, don't want any of that. And uh, she she also is in favor of decriminalization of marijuana possession and also. I read the reason.com article correctly. Uh, I believe it seemed like she wanted to be decriminalized possession of things like heroin and cocaine. Yeah, she's pretty good on drug control issues and also even on prison reform, as I understand. Uh, Yes. Okay. So now there's three and those can be pretty big issues, especially the anti-war issue. So in theory, and this is just like a hypothetical. I could see a world where we have a better country if Tulsi Gabbard is president, brings the troops home and does sort of those, you know, things that she's promising and resets the conversation on what the heck the United States should be doing overseas. And then all the things that she's probably going to bring to the presidency that we wouldn't like, we can deal with after that. So I, you'd really have to say this is the strongest issue and it outweighs so many other things. But of course, you got to keep her in the context of of the party that she's running in. And um, there's all sorts of other ancillary drawbacks to the Democratic Party having the White House and some other things. So I really don't see her as the candidate. If she is, she's probably probably the best they got if you're a libertarian. But that's not saying saying much, much. I guess. So anyway. Yeah, so we applaud her for the campaign that she has. I mean, I honestly, if you, if you want to kind of get a libertarian, like you know, you can read a libertarian interview uh, with John Stossel on Reason.com. We'll post links in the show notes page. Norman, what do you do? You have any thoughts on her? Oh, not really. I mean, uh, almost all the Democrat candidates are just terrible. I mean, but when are they not? Uh, I mean, so similarly, I only have seen what one Republican candidate that I think is not terrible, and that was Ron Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but even that, like. I mean, trying to compare Tulsi Gabbard to Ron Paul is only only in the thinnest of terms, yeah. uh, really, when it comes down to it. Because you know, Ron was just so so complete, whereas Tulsi is very is just very thin for us. And you know, okay, cool. Like you know, we can give her give her a hand for for her anti drug war and anti war views in general. That's great, you know. But hey, I'm already against the next president, so <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's all a really I good say. point. Uh, Yeah, I guess I'll have one more final thought. I think she's probably most to be applauded that she's at least helping the Democrats realize they're not really anti-war. Well, and and she did do one amazing thing in that she basically single-handedly destroyed Kamala Harris and took her out of the race. That's So kudos to Tulsi for that because we definitely didn't need Kamala. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) for sure. All right. Uh, We have another question from Dave in Texas. What should our answer be to the problem of doxing? 
And so the question I read it as, what should our answer be? I'm guessing what is a libertarian perspective on this? So let's, for those of us who don't know what doxing is, Norman, can you give us an idea? Yeah, so what he's referring to is the practice or the activity of revealing certain personal information, usually things like addresses or a phone number or something like that, something to that effect, uh, usually with some type of malevolent intent, and usually they're just revealing that on the internet somehow. Now, I, I think there's, you know, we have to differentiate, like, there are several ways in which we can kind of consider this. And I think, let's say three. There's the strictly moral consideration, there's the strictly legal consideration now, and then there's the, what would be a more idealized libertarian explanation or right way of thinking about it. <laughs> uh, so let's start with the legal perspective from now. As it stands right now, there's it's kind of a weird thing to be able to reveal certain pieces of information publicly about someone um, because there's all sorts of, you know, even whistleblowing laws at times. The problem comes like you've seen these docs scenarios where somebody reveals a piece of information, like maybe places a call to the police and says, hey, you know, this dude at such and such an address, he's got a ton of drugs in there. You need to go take him down. And sometimes those are taken with uh, by the police as being like, that's a, that's a tip. And then they go and break down the door. And that's kind of where, I mean, you've seen this before. This happens happened to streamers before uh, for video games sometimes. This actually happens. And people get proud of themselves. They're like, ha look what I did to this guy. So like strictly speaking, there's that portion, which is just, that's already wrong. But like strictly speaking though, from a libertarian point of view, there's actually not really a prohibition against information sharing like that. Because libertarianism is concerned with property rights and you don't have property over information. You don't have a property right in information like that. You don't have a property right in your reputation even. If somebody tries to malign your reputation, well, you know, I'm sorry. That's like you don't have a property right in what someone else says about you. In order to try and do so, you would have to forcibly stop them from speaking, which would require you to initiate aggression, which would be wrong. And so this actually comes down in many respects to our views on intellectual property itself, which we, which we as property rights loving libertarians have to admit that intellectual property is false, that patents and copyright are actually not forms of property at all, realistically. Uh, they do not fit into a libertarian theory of property rights. And if you want to learn more about that, then you would want to read Stefan Kinsella's paper called Against Intellectual Property. If you Google those three words with Stefan Kinsella, you will easily find that as a freely available uh, booklet or paper. But the extension of that into something like reputation rights and information, such as personal information like that, you kind of have to admit that there's not really a, a libertarian way of arguing against the revealing of personal information. Now, here's the thing, though. Just because libertarianism says something should not be illegal doesn't mean that it is not morally wrong. As we have said many, 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 many a time, there's plenty of things that we would say as libertarians that are not aggression per se, but that are morally heinous to do. We think that prostitution is morally wrong as Christians, and we sh you shouldn't do that, okay? But we don't think it should be legally prohibited. And likewise, I, whereas I don't think there is a libertarian argument to be made for, well, in, at all times, there's uh, the revealing of personal information is prohibited. 
it doesn't mean that, oh, well, then that just means it's right to do in all circumstances. I don't believe that at all. So I think that's really the answer is that this is not just a problem that is solved just by, well, how do I just apply libertarian theory? We're always more than libertarians. We have to remember that. And first and foremost, we're supposed to be Christians, of course. And then there are moral judgments that we make that are outside of the realm of libertarian theory, period. And so that's where we have to go with that primarily. So that's, that's pretty much, the I think, the, the runaround for all of it, for doxing. So for our next question, I don't have a name for who asked this, uh, but the question is pretty succinctly stated. Can you be a libertarian and Christian and be for strong border security, perhaps even a wall? So this is a this is of course a, a you know an often repeated question or at least some sort of variant upon it in uh, both you know various types of libertarian circles, including you know our massive Facebook group. And I think that on some level, you I, I have to kind of take issue with the question from the outset because there are some dare I say foils in here. I mean, what do we mean by strong? border security? And where does a wall even fall into that? I mean, what if a wall is really weak border security? How would I know that? I mean, to what extent do any of these terms, what, what extent of the terms are we, are we discussing here? So I think perhaps a better way of addressing this is what should the libertarian position on borders be? I mean, if we are, you know, going to talk as honest libertarians, uh, we have to admit that borders are, are, are good things. We admit that property rights means that there is, strictly speaking, a border between what is mine and what is not mine. And that includes borders for land. Now, that being said... It also means asking other people to recognize that. That's that's true. That's true. But we have some... There are some naturally recognized borders about, you know, for instance, there's obviously the borders of my body. But then there's there's other ways in which that we, you know, we we come to uh, differing understandings about how those borders are applied in uh, in varying scenarios and, and land being a, a very principal one of that, right? And so, you know, if you want to build a wall around your your personal property border, you're more than welcome to do so, right? That's fine. Uh, but when we start talking about the borders of nations, things get a little more fuzzy because it is not the same thing to say that the border of a nation is just like the border of my house. To where if somebody happens to be inside the border of my like my land or my house, there are varying degrees as to whether I would consider that person a trespasser uh, versus just somebody you know who just happened to step in versus somebody who's out to kill me or something like that, you know. And so there, there's a a definite sense in which we cannot just make the analogy to oh well it's just like the borders of my land and my house uh, as it pertains to the to national borders. That seems to be sort of the shorthand for a lot of people who want strong border security. Yes. And it's sort of like, well, you libertarians or we libertarians believe in property rights. And don't you believe that we shouldn't just leave our doors open and that anybody is allowed onto our property? And it's at first. Like the, but the blush, analogy just does, breaks down. Yeah. Eventually, you know, at first blush, it's like, well, OK, yeah, maybe there should be a wall. But then you have to then there, there's more to it than that because you're not just one single property. Right, right. And we are a lot of properties. And so it's, there is a, you know, a sense in which we have to admit that because we live in a state right now that we kind of have to have some sort of non-ideal answer for where we are right now in order to best approximate or at least best get to a sense of security and still minimally affecting people's right to travel and right to immigrate and whatnot. 
And so traditionally, libertarians have kind of put forward a so-called open borders position. Now, that doesn't mean uh, the open borders position shouldn't be uh, characterized as just, oh, well, anybody willy-nilly can get in, period. You know, just complete porosity. That's not what they mean. And just in the same sense in which some open borders advocates would, would talk about closed borders advocates as being, well, they just want to put up a wall the size of, you know, something off of Game of Thrones and never talk to anybody again. Uh, that's also a mischaracterization. But I think what, what we're trying to get at is what's an appropriate way of dealing with the fact that, you know, we want to be open, but we also don't want, we don't want certain bad things to occur as well. Yeah. And unfortunately, the way in which the rhetoric has kind of degenerated in the last 10 to 20 years, uh, we are to the point now where a lot of people don't want to even talk rationally about it. And there's so much misinformation and problems in just understanding even how immigration takes place even in reality right now that I think there's just a lot of education that needs to occur before a lot of people can make real judgments about what should be done. To that end, I would say that the best thing you can do for yourself in, in this respect is to learn how and why things do occur and the realities of so-called illegal immigration, the realities of legal immigration, and how awkward that that even can be, and the problems therein. There's a, there was a great article, in actually in Reason Magazine of late, uh, called There Is No Line, uh, which is really terrific in explaining that, you know, the, how difficult it is just to get into the country right now. And then you'd understand in part, well, why people would choose to illegally try to get here. And by illegally, I mean, not going through the channels that are that are yeah. uh, laid forth. It's not just easy enough. It's not simple as, to, oh, well, oh, oh, you, you know, just got to get in my, the line. My, and go to neighbors, my neighbors or my, you know, my ancestors got in line, you know, let's say recent ancestors like, pre, you know, yeah. uh, not not something like 200 years ago where it was like pretty open. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, my neighbor came here, you know, and they they were in line. No, no they, they weren't not in really. line. <laughs> it's not we're, you know, we're not at a carnival, <laughs> although sometimes I, I guess maybe that was a bad analogy for me to pick, but because it certainly feels like it. You know, if I were to detect a sense of importance to the question, whenever someone says, well, we need a strong this or a strong that or stable this or whatever, like I understand like the, the, the heart behind it to some extent is, well, I want to make sure my fellow Americans aren't going to be harmed, whatever the border policy may be. And to, to an extent, it's sort of read into the question and, and maybe it's just the way that you may, you tried to, again, questioner, if you maybe have just been trying to like succinctly word your question so that we would answer it. So maybe it's that. that. So, but when you, when you put in the word strong, it's like, well, okay, well, what does strong mean? Because it actually may be more beneficial for America to not have what conservatives or Trump would call a strong border security. And so if the argument is possible that allowing more immigrants in is actually better for everybody inside the border, then technically letting more people in is stronger border security in in the sense of like well-being. Uh, Ding, ding, ding. So the argument isn't, well, do we need a wall? Don't we need a wall? Like, okay, fine. We can have that discussion. And again, not this is on my mind lately because the Facebook group has been talking about this uh, mostly because of me because I've been bringing it up. But <laughs> it's on my mind. When people advocate for open borders, the very, very first step we would like people to take 
is to acknowledge that such a mentality that more immigrants could be better is a possible thing to accept. And then after that, to say, you know, we should probably be more welcoming of immigrants. And hey, neighbor, have you thought about this? We should be more welcoming of immigrants because technically we're all, almost all of us are immigrants here. And so we're a nation of immigrants. It's, it, I say it this way in some ways to be provocative, but to some extent, I, it's like, well, no, it's actually just simply true, is that it's actually anti-American to be anti-immigrant. Like it's part of who we are as a, as a nation. And so if you're a proud American, you need to be a proud immigrant-loving person. That's the way I would look at it. Now, I understand why people aren't. To some extent, I even kind of give them due credit to the way that they're thinking. At the same time, the attitude needs to be, hey, uh, if you are coming here to seek freedom and you're coming here to make your life better, whether you're coming from destitution or whether you're just, you know, middle class from the country you came in and you want to make a better life for yourself, you're allowed here. And it shouldn't take the stringent quotas to allow those people in. And the economists who are like anti-immigration also will admit that the statistics will show that what they say is, oh, well, our studies show that there's only a really tiny minuscule improvement to the well-being of native-born citizens. Well, even that is already an improvement. And most other economists would say, well, no, 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 no. It's way, way, way better than that. So we could belabor this. We've got a couple episodes on this. You can clearly tell that I'm passionate about it because, you know, I'm passionate about people's freedom, especially people who happen to be unfortunate enough to be born in another country. Like, hello. So you can tell I'm passionate about this. And I don't just, you know, blame people for their own dumb luck. Uh, for being, you know, they didn't choose where they were born. So anyway, we'll move on because this could turn into its own full episode yeah. and we don't want to do that. This is a QA. and a I hope we answered the question to an extent. We'd have to know more. What does strong mean? What does a wall do? That kind of thing. Uh, and, and to give you some ideas about where to go, I definitely recommend the There Is No Line article from Reason Magazine. It was a great article that I think gives a lot of light on the situation. Yeah. Uh, oh, so Brian Kaplan's book uh, is a graphic nonfiction. It is called Open Borders. And don't let the title scare you from being like, oh my goodness, he's going to be for open borders. Well, he is, but it's not, it's not like, it's not so radical in one sense. But it's the traditional idea of open yes. borders. I mean, yeah. that, the idea that it should not be difficult to make a change. Yeah. That, you know what? That's probably the best way to put it. It shouldn't be difficult to make a change if you're able to do it. Yeah. Come on. I mean, yeah. this is ridiculous. By the way, there's open borders between Pennsylvania and Missouri. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. So, I mean, all hell has broken loose because of, you know, anyway. Oh, I just want to go back to Texas. So, <laughs> yeah, know, but whatever. it's a good thing that Texas lets you. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So next question. Uh, Bill from, from New York has asked, asked this question. How does God rule unregenerate humanity, namely all those in the world who do not yet believe or submit to his lordship, those who are not yet regenerated Christians? Well, Bill, uh, I, would, I would posit that he more or less rules it in the same way he rules the rest of the universe too. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, God's rule is established uh, in the Bible as being, you know, directed from his act of creation. Uh, so that by virtue of the fact that he created everything is the reason that he owns it. And it's the reason he has the right to rule over it. And so even if he gives his creation a measure of, of relative freedom in, in as much as, you know, we have, at least from my theological perspective, the ability to make choices in a free will sense 
and whatnot, that that doesn't negate the fact, whether I'm a Christian or not, that God is still ruling. So I think that that perhaps if you're asking for some other explanation as to that, uh, some explanation of common grace or other aspects of that, you know, I, I would direct you to uh, to other writings such as those of uh, R.C. Sproul regarding common grace, or if you wanted to go to someone that's slightly different, perhaps a Wayne Grudem. Uh, I think he's pretty good on that matter. Or even, or even you know, our, our good buddy Al Mohler. I mean, these guys have great ways of explaining that, and that's fine. But I think that that's probably about as far as we want to go with that for now. Now, our next question comes from Derek in Arizona, and this is pretty. This is pretty great. I'm, I really appreciate your question, Derek. Uh, this is all about uh, David Lipscomb, who is one of my pet topics. I'm working on some cool projects in this regard, and he asked, uh, "What do you think of the argument that David Lipscomb made in his work on civil government that God commanded a war of extermination against nations that inhabited Canaan and not the individual Canaanites and their families?" He claims, that is, David claims, that it was only a war against the members and supporters of human governments at enmity with the government of God and that every period of time the option was open for each Canaanite family and each family member to renounce their human government and join the family devoted to the government of God. David then quotes uh, Deuteronomy 7, but then points out, quoting David at this point, Notwithstanding those fearful denunciations and prohibitions, they took wives from them from the beginning, and the way was always open for the adoption of any of them into the family of Abraham who might wish to serve and honor the God of Abraham. These examples show that while the law was inexorable in requiring them to destroy the members of these sinful families while upholders of these human governments, yet when any of them entered into the family of Abraham to build up the government of God, the law for their destruction was abrogated with reference to them. And Derek finally asked, do you find his exegesis of this part of scripture compelling? And the answer to that is, well, in as much as you've described it like this, uh, overwhelmingly, yes. I thought, actually, I, I've, I've kind of said this in, uh, in other articles and in other podcasts even, I'm pretty sure, uh, in describing, or at least I know, I'm, I know I've argued this when I've talked to other people, both Christians and non-Christians, about the wars in the, in the book of Judges and, and uh, Exodus and the first five books, right, of the Old Testament, that uh, it's really interesting that at any given point, and you see example after example after example of this in the Old Testament, where if somebody wanted to become part of Israel, they always had that door open to them. And that realistically, it's uh, a lot of my views on this topic, uh, I would say, have at least part of their root in Lipscomb's writings and in, in, in this book uh, on civil government uh, after discovering it a number of years ago. And so I think this is a really great point that, that really, you know, when people say, oh, well, all these wars that were happening in the Old Testament just show that, you know, God was always about just basically genocide or something like that. But realistically, that's not what was exactly going on. If somebody wanted to come into a relationship with the people of God and thereby come into a relationship with the God of Israel as a result, they were always welcome to incorporate into that body. That was the rule. And in fact, there's uh, some really interesting even, you know, evidence to this effect as it in the uh, archaeological uh, record of antiquity uh, regarding the Abiru uh, peoples and their incorporating of, of, of conquered peoples, if you will, into them. Uh, and so there's, there's even independent evidence from the Bible that even starts supporting this. So, you know, we have all sorts of different things that suggest that this was happening at the time. And the idea being that theologically that anybody who is at one point an enemy of God can just by submitting to God be reconciled unto him is old news to Christianity, re realistically. So, I mean, this is a great thing. Uh, and I, I, I find this to be a fascinating little reference here. 
Thanks, Derek, for mentioning it. I think this is really cool and another great reason why everybody should be reading David Lipscomb. So I want to conclude this question by saying, you know, I love this book on civil government. And it's worth noting that right now uh, we're in the process of creating a reprint edition of this book. It's a kind of a collaborative effort between LCI and AIER headed by Edward Stringham. Ed and I have been talking about doing this reprint for years, and we're finally in a position now that we can do so. Uh, If you want to support that, please let us know, and we'll be happy to talk to you more about it and what that entails. Uh, But I've got some folks working with me now to uh, reproduce a lot of the old articles that originally constituted the book, and we're doing a bunch of research on this. It's very exciting, and we see this as being something that will probably conclude in 2020, probably later in the year. Uh, It's going to take some time, but it's very exciting. Again, Contact us if you want to hear more. So the next question is from Oliver in Canada. What is the first step to spreading libertarian ideas in a country like Canada where personal liberties aren't really talked about that much? Y'all are too nice to talk about controversial things, aren't you? What's this all about? Uh, Speaking of the boot, maybe that should be what you talk about is that the government is like a boot and you just go down that. Anyway, Sorry, we're making jokes uh, from down yeah. south here. <laughs> okay, back on topic. No more boots. <laughs> well, you know, my, my initial thought on this is going to be like, you know, you want to know how do you spread libertarian ideas where those kinds of topics like personal liberties aren't really talked about that much. So to some extent... No, 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 no. Doug, 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 Doug. He, he, <laughs> the question is, what's the first step? The first step. And here's the first step, okay? I'm dead serious here. The first step is your personal understanding. Getting yourself to the point where you have a thorough understanding about civil liberty and why it's important and how uh, it plays into just in general, the, why is it that personal liberties play into property rights at all from the outset? Once you get that taken care of, then you start talking to other people, okay? That's, that's key. So first step, Come to a better understanding yourself. I'm dead serious. No, I know. I was assuming that somebody who listens to our podcast and is engaged enough to ask us a question has done this. But that is that is definitely true. And I'm kind of glad you started there, um, just despite that that felt strange. Uh, But all these liberties flow from property rights and and those sorts of things. So understanding that basis and then understanding how you can communicate that with other people. Yeah, directing those conversations into understandings of property rights and why that's crucial is how you're going to make a big impact there. And then just practice. Really just practicing is where it comes down to after that. Yeah, see, I'm reading the question slightly differently. And so I'm like, well, people don't talk about these things. So how do I get them to talk about it? Might be some of the angle going on here. Yeah, but like, and then, then I mean, then I just have to kind of, again, I'm going to sort of pseudo object because what we have to, like, we have to be the one improved unit first. Like we didn't, you don't start off and immediately come up with, hey, let's build the Libertarian Christian Institute, right? I mean, this this is a, even what we're doing now is the culmination of a decade's worth of work, right? So now I'm not saying you need to, you know, practice for 10 years before you say anything, but just realize that like, these are, these are things where when you become the one improved unit from the outset uh, and just allow things to grow from there, it's the best thing I can tell you. All right. So next question is from Bryce in Ohio. What role does stewardship play in libertarian theory? Most of the stuff I've read doesn't mention whatever various forms there may be. It's just pure ownership. Bryce, that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'll just say on, on a personal note here, when I was, I was kind of 
more conservative on my views of property rights. And I was becoming introduced to libertarianism and they were talking about all this ownership, ownership, ownership. And, and, you know, there is always that thing in the back of my mind as a Christian, well, isn't all of this gods. And we've been asked that before in a different podcast. You can look at any of the Q and a episodes that we've done and, and we've actually addressed these on uh, at least one of them. And so, yes, of course we believe that everything is owned by God. If, if God is the creator, but then that doesn't really, that doesn't really help me with the respect to like, how does that change my relationship to my neighbors? And I would see ownership in from a, from a secular libertarian sort of assessment to be, you know, a Christian could kind of adopt that and say, well, you know what, fine, God owns everything, but I own this from a libertarian perspective. And from a Christian perspective, this is just what I am given to steward. This is what I am given to take care of in this world, do with as I please in this world, and God will have things to say. God will judge me based on how I am improving things in this world. Does that, what do you think about that, Norman? I think it sounds pretty good. I mean, overall, I would say, you know, one thing that that I would additionally point out is that we have written a number of things on this. And you can, if you just search for, you know, on Google for libertarianchristians.com stewardship, You'll find a number of articles by both me and Doug and Elias Hage and others uh, talking about stewardship in in a variety of different contexts, and that's uh, that's important. All right. So our final question, which is one that probably deserves its own episode to have a conversation about, but this is from Dusty. Uh, how do the different theological interpretations of free will play into libertarian Christian philosophy and worldview? I mean, gosh, that's like a whole, that's a whole podcast or two. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to have to do, we're going to have to keep this short <laughs> to some extent. So Dusty, I apologize ahead of time if... Uh, If this doesn't, uh, if this only whets your appetite, then that'd be great. There are a lot of different theological interpretations of free will. I mean, most familiar are people who say that, you know, we don't have any free will, that it's all an illusion. Those would be like hard determinists. And there are some Christians who are like that. There are other Christians who believe that there is complete human free will. And it's actually called the libertarian view of free will, not to be confused with libertarian Christian or libertarian political philosophy. But they believe that there is genuine human free will on that end of the spectrum. And then there's a lot of in between. And most of it is really like, I mean, almost all of it's in between in, a, in an extent because it's a discussion over the, the extent to which human beings are actually free. You know, if there's a God that has foreknowledge, does that mean we're free? And then, and then does God determine things? I mean, there's all of those different theological uh, interpretations going on. I think it's worthy to point out, though, Doug, that uh, that when we speak of strictly speaking libertarian free will from a philosophical point of view, that even even the most strict definition of libertarian free will doesn't necessarily comport to even the way that like Arminians think, for instance. If anything, uh, I think that you know that that's kind of in between is where we 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 recognize. Where, where the reality is with God and that there are certain things that like that human free will will not change in the grand scheme of things. God has a plan and that plan is, is going to be accomplished whether or not you or I have anything to say about it, you know? And so there are certain things that, that we just won't, we won't change in this regard. Now, that being said, 
uh, we do have a lot of relative freedom that God has given us. And whether or not you come from this from really even a, even a reform perspective, a strict reform perspective, or an Arminian type perspective, I think all of us can kind of get behind the idea that we do make choices and we are morally responsible for those choices. And as it pertains to, you know, to libertarian philosophy uh, and, and the way that Christian libertarians in particular think about these things, uh, we see that we are morally responsible. We, there are no privileges of position, that we are all equally morally responsible to the moral law, uh, and that there are parts of that, the moral law, that uh, pertain to the legal realm, that which is considered in the realm of aggression, uh, the way in which that we socially interact with each other and use force in those interactions. And that's where libertarianism is, is most located, if you will, in the natural law, in the, in the realm of moral law. But there are also plenty of other things in which parts of the moral law that do not play into that as well. So I think that, you know, it's kind of important to differentiate the idea of libertarian free will from a philosophical point of view versus uh, libertarian philosophy uh, as it pertains to, you know, the political side of things. And I think that I think it's just important to kind of make that distinction. And there's so much more that I, I'm sure that could be said. Uh, I'm not always that interested in going into that in, in full detail, but there are lots and lots of resources out there to really delve into it from a theological point of view. Uh, it's well worth it to become versed in those in those ideas, to have an understanding of the reform side of things, to have an understanding of the Armenian side of things, to have some other uh, interpretations of those ideas and, and different ways of looking at it from that'll, that'll happen and you know, that you'll come across in the Protestant point of view. But I think that's, that's probably where I'll, I'll leave it at that. All right. We were able to keep that under a long period of time. So that was good. So, and we are at the end of our questions. So I'm sure we don't agree with everyone who listens to this on these answers. So if you have input, you want to give us feedback, you want to ask us follow-up questions, send us... Comment! Uh, yeah, comment. Um, you can post the episode in our Facebook group if you're part of the group and then say, hey, here's why Doug and Norman are wrong. Uh, be nicer than what I just said. But um, <laughs> I don't know. That seems pretty nice. Yeah, that's, 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 that's good enough. We won't, we won't be too offended. I mean, maybe. I don't know. It depends on the day. But... We're having a little bit of fun here. It's like close to Christmas when we're recording this. So we're like, hey, let's just let's do this. So thank you for listening. And if you want to send those feedback, you can do podcast at libertarianchristians.com or you can go on our website, go to contact and send us a message there. We are also on Facebook. You can find us, send us a message, facebook.com slash libertarianchristians. And have a happy new year. And we have an amazing podcast for 2020 planned. And so we hope you stay tuned for that. And we'll see you next year to use that tired old joke. <laughs> it might already be the new year for you by the time you're listening to this. So maybe that joke won't work, but thanks everybody. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. 
If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.